Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Life is pain. And anyone that says differently is selling you something, said the Dread Pirate Roberts. Life is pain. Anyone that says differently is selling you something. You know, a biblical worldview of humanity and even a clear and correct understanding of the nature of sin can influence a despondent and even despairing outlook on humanity or even the nature of existence. The truth that is found in the phrase, life is pain, isn't necessarily something that is remarkably or specifically Christian, though. It's an undisputable fact. The Dread Pirate Roberts was on to something when he said life is pain. And I think we can look at any life or any example of life and find that there is no picture of life without pain, without suffering, without struggle, without some sort of turmoil, some sort of dispute. Life is pain. I have to confess that I have a a tendency to maybe even adopt this pessimistic perspective when I think about humanity, the nature of man. Because biblically, I have one advantage over the rest of the world. As a Christian, I understand why pain exists. I see it as a consequence of sin, and I can make sense of the present of suffering and trials in life because I know that it exists in this world because sin exists in this world. That doesn't help me have an optimistic perspective, though. I just have an understanding. And so I have to confess this tendency to be pessimistic in my perspective. This morning, though, I I don't want to contradict this perspective of the Dread Pirate Roberts that life is pain, but I want to explore the beauty that's in life. What makes it worth it? Because there really is plenty of beauty in life. I'm a nature lover, and for me, the best illustration of that's when I wake up in the morning. I love, since we've moved to Greenwood, when we drive down that road that connects to Rogers Avenue between 70, I don't know the roads yet, but, you know, you're driving on that road, and it doesn't matter which direction you're, you come. You get to the perfect altitude, and you look out, and you see the skyline. And there's not a building in sight, and it's just magnificent rolling hills. It doesn't matter if you're coming home or leaving home. I love it every time I drive by there. It's a tremendous blessing to be able to experience life. Maybe you're not a nature lover, but there's joy buried in life, even beyond the suffering and the trials, it's all worth it because there's something bigger that we get to experience. My my point is that we can see through the turmoil of life to see God's blessings at work. Even though the depravity of, even through the depravity of man, we can see the opportunity for redemption afforded us through a Savior. And this morning, I 
want to explore the two sides of this coin. I want to explore, one, the nature of humanity and mankind as depraved and contributing to the turmoil that we experience. And two, I want to explore this unmerited favor that God gives us, this never-ending grace that God gives us. I think that sounds like a good sermon. The depravity of man and God's grace. And so that's where I want to head this morning. We'll be picking up where we've left off in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Today, moving past what is referred to as the Shema, we'll be reading from verse 8 all the way through to verse 12. And so I'll ask you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6 so that you can read along with me as I read out loud. But first, I'd like us to pray as we open ourselves up to God's Word. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the privilege that we have to gather here this day in your name, to gather, to worship you, and to praise you. Lord, I pray that you would use this time to speak to us through your word. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we would be able to hear the truths that are found in your law, that you would not conceal them from us. God, I pray that we would turn to you in worship as we study your word. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray. Amen. The Bible says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and with houses full of things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I want to talk about blessings this morning. And our, our text starts off... Uh, command with a commandment, with an imperative. Our text in verse 8 starts off by saying, And you shall bind these to your hands, you shall bind these to your foreheads. What we're talking about here, of course, is the context that we've been studying for the past five weeks. This command that God has given the people of Israel to love the Lord your God. The command that when Jesus was asked, What is the greatest commandment? He responded, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So the imperative in our text, verses 8 and 9, that, we, that the people of Israel not only should teach this command to their children repetitively, that they should focus on this, but that they should literally bind God's Word as a guiding point on their hand, on their foreheads. And you think, when I say literally that I'm making this up, but the understanding of the Jewish tradition, even today during the morning prayer, is that they would bind what's called teflon and phylacteries to their foreheads. Literally, leather straps wrapped around their arm connecting boxes that contain little bitty scrolls with God's Word written on it. A headpiece with a little box on it with a scroll inside that contains God's Word. That's the literal understanding of the Shema, verses 8 and 9. But it has a greater purpose than just that literal understanding. It has a greater purpose. 
And that's what we need to understand this morning, because if we understand what Moses is writing here for the people, he's giving them an encouragement as they prepare to step out. When they leave his leadership, when they enter the promised land, when all of these things that God has promised them them comes to fruition, how are they to behave? They're about to receive blessings. Incredible blessings. What do we mean? What do we mean when we talk about blessings? I think the natural question, and this is the question I want to answer first, how do we get these blessings? How do I get in on this? We look at this and we, we see what these blessings are. It's to find cities that we did not build. Houses that we did not fill. Vineyards that we did not plant. All of these things, we see God's grace. Things that we did not do anything to earn or deserve, but they are shown to us in favor. This is grace on top of grace on top of grace again. Cities we did not build, houses that are full that we did not fill, cisterns that we did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that we did not plant. It is grace on grace on grace on top of more grace. Blessings are simply God's unmerited favor shown to people. And there's two types of blessings I want to talk about this morning. The first one doesn't show up in our text, but I want to define it because it's far more important than temporal blessings. There are eternal blessings of grace that only come about when we accept Christ as our Savior, the unmerited favor of God to give us the ability to be saved. It starts with conviction inside of our hearts, the unmerited favor of God that we would be able to understand how deeply we need a Savior. Our text explores these temporary blessings, these things that the nation of Israel is about to experience as they entered into the promised land, these cities that are built that they didn't build, everything that they're about to take possession of that they did nothing to earn, God's temporal blessings. And I say that this is less significant than the internal blessings for one reason. Even though these blessings came from God, they will rust, they will decay, and they will fall apart. They are temporary. They will not last forever. It's not worth our time to be chasing these temporary blessings. But that doesn't mean that I still don't want to be in. I still want to know where they come from. And that's the question that people ask. How can I get in on these temporary blessings? It's not a bad question. It's not an invalid question. I just think that it's the wrong question to be asking. But I'll answer it anyway. In fact, Jesus makes it clear for us whenever he was speaking through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verses 9 through 11. He makes it clear that God wants to give us these blessings. 
He wants to see his chosen people blessed. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the passage that I just referenced, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those of you who ask him? To add to that even, we know that all good things that come from God, that are perfect, that are, can be regarded as perfect, are a gift from God. Jesus' half-brother James wrote about that. James 1.7 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. In fact, the answer to obtaining temporary gifts and blessings from God is simple. To live in obedience to Him. This, this is the entire message that is written here if we look at the context. The, the journey from not being blessed to being blessed is obedience. Temporary blessings come as a result of obedience to God's Word. And this isn't something that's super spiritual. I want to be clear here. Just because we don't have temporary blessings, this doesn't mean that we're living in disobedience to God's Word because this isn't something that happens all the time. But blessings are a natural consequence of living in obedience to God's Word. Because the commandments that God gives us to follow, He gives them to us for our own benefit. Some of it's common sense. Some of it goes against our nature. But a lot of it, like the rules our parents give us growing up, are there to protect us. A natural consequence to obedience to God's Word is blessings. So the answer to the question is, how can I obtain blessings from God? Live in obedience to His Word. And in fact, I want you to show you how answering that question in that way points out that that's the wrong question to be asking. Because if we really live in obedience to God's Word, again, look at the context. Go back to verse 4. What does the Shema tell us? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul. If you really want to live in obedience to God's word, you should be overcome with what it means to love him. You've really gone full circle. It's not a problem to ask the question, how can I obtain God's blessings? But we need to realize that the answer points us to loving him, to obedience to him. I think it makes sense. I think about Moses preparing this, getting ready to impart these words to the nation of Israel that's left him. Remember the promise that they had. They thought they were leaving Egypt to go into the promised land. But it was a consequence of disobedience. It was a consequence of, of failing to see the picture of God's blessing in their life clearly that caused the nation of Israel who left Egypt to be wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. The generation that's getting ready to leave Moses never was enslaved in, in Egypt. They're getting ready to receive blessings 
that they didn't do anything to earn. God's grace on top of grace on top of grace. And Moses is pleading with them. Don't make the same mistake that your parents made. Don't lose sight of where these blessings come from because you didn't do anything to earn it. And this is so important. I need you to pay so much attention to this because not only do you need to remember it, but for your children's sake, you need to make sure that they remember it. The same way that I've made sure that you remember it. He's pleading with a nation, with his children, with this next generation that's about to leave them, that they will remember that God is the one who provides these blessings. He's answered the question of where God's blessings come from with a rebuke. He's clarified that that's the wrong question to be asking. Instead, love God. But what should we do with our blessings once we have them? The question at hand in our passage is not where do we get the blessings. It's clear they come from God. The question at hand is what are we supposed to do with them once we have them? What are we supposed to do once we're living in God's temporal blessings? I think you know it as well as I do, that it's easy to run to God when we feel that we have no other choice. When we feel like the circumstances of life have have stood in our way in such obstacles that it's beyond our control, that we're not capable of pushing on any further. When we reach points of despair, when the hardships of life show up, when we watch movies and learn from the Dread Pirate Roberts that life is pain and this is just a part of it. It's easy in those moments to run to God. In fact, I even even point at Romans 8 and know that God is using the circumstances in my life to make me realize how much I need Him, that I would run to Him, that I would quit trying to do it on my own, that I'd realize how much I actually need Him, and that I would find myself broken for Him, calling out for Him to answer the not just the needs, but the desires that I have. That I would find myself calling out for Him. It's easy to have the right perspective of ourselves when nothing's going right. But that's a lot harder to do when things look pretty good. If you notice in the bulletin, the title of the sermon is What to Do When Everything's All Right. Because most of us, I think we've seen the hard days and we know what I'm talking about. When we're at the bottom calling out for God. But the tougher question isn't how we run to Him when we need Him. It's how we remind ourselves that we need Him when things are going all right. The children of Israel are about to enter the promised land. Full of good things. Houses that are full of good things. Cisterns that are full of good things. Tremendous blessings. 
And it's easy to have a perspective that they've earned all of this through their conquests. That they overcome slavery, that they push through trials, that they benefit from the labors of their parents, that they have done all of this to make a place for themselves. And now that they're here, look at what I've done. Look at what I've built. Look at what I've overcome. I want to show you something. I want you to watch this really closely because born into this problem is a human condition that comes from sin. It's called selfishness. Bump the mic for dramatic effect. The same selfishness that causes us to run to God and ask, how can I get your blessings, is the same selfishness that whenever we have blessings causes us to say, look at me. Look at how competent I am. And everything that I've accomplished. So God, through the inspiration of Moses, records these words that you should remember the commands that He's given to them. You should remember them so much that you should bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. It's a literal imperative, but it exists for one reason. Because you're a selfish sinner that needs to be reminded every single day that everything that you have comes from God, His providence, His sovereignty, His blessing. This idea that the ESV translates it as frontlets between your eyes is like a horse being guided by God's Word, directing us that whenever we see things, we see them for what they are, not what our selfish sin nature sees them as. It isn't something we're going to be able to overcome all by ourselves. We have to be reminded with the same despair, with the same... Oh, what's the word for it? Whenever it's a uh, uh, desperation, I think is what I'm going for. But with the same urgency behind calling out for God in our time of need, we have to call out for Him when we are not in a time of need. This is the meaning of the instruction. That we would tie God's Word on our arms so that we would look down at it and we would remember that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. Verse 9 describes putting these words on the doorpost of the gates of, of the, the people's houses and writing them through the doorways. And the practice would be that as you leave, you would touch that as a reminder. Every single day you would touch God's Word as a reminder as you leave. It's a literal imperative. I believe the front lip part is more figurative just in that it's giving us this picture that we are to be guided by God's Word. But this is a literal imperative to put God's Word inside of our houses. To give it a place of prominence that it reminds us, even when things are all right, how desperately we need a Savior. Desperately need a Savior. So that even when things are going good, we remember that we have somebody to call out for. 
Even when we look at these temporary blessings that will rust, that will decay, that will dissolve, that will be destroyed one day, we remember the eternal blessings that God has offered us. Because we need to remember how hopeless we are without Him. Look at the last verse, verse 12. Take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've mentioned before this picture of the Old Testament shadows that written and ingrained into the history of the nation of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. There's what we call a shadow because it points to something even bigger in the New Testament. The bondage that Israel faced in Egypt is the bondage and the ensnarement that today unsaved persons experience as they are entrapped and ensnared to sin. The deliverance only came from God Just like salvation only comes from God. There's nothing that can be done to overcome the bondage that sin traps people with. The promised land, or Jerusalem, points towards the ultimate deliverance of eternal blessings in heaven. When we get to experience paradise, God's relationship, no separation from Him, being able to experience all of the joy that comes with new life. The eternal blessings of God are far greater than the temporary ones. That that doesn't mean that temporary ones don't exist. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy temporary ones. But even in the moments when we are experiencing temporary blessings in this life, it should be pointing us towards remembering the one who makes all of that possible. It should be pointing us towards remembering how hopeless we are without a Savior. The state of humanity enslaved to sin is such that we cannot even see how bad our condition is. If you really look at what sin is and the way that it's described in the Bible, without God's grace, you are blind to how bad it is. It's like watching somebody struggle with something and they they don't even realize that they're struggling. Everyone feels bad for the three-legged dog. He doesn't even know he's got a missing leg. The condition of humanity is such that without God's grace, we can't even see how bad we need Him. How how desperately we need Him. But the, the goodness of the gospel and the story of the gospel is this. That His Word reveals to us not only how desperately we need Him, but His Spirit can convict us of how desperately we need Him in such a way that we can turn to Him, that He provides for us immediate justification for sin, 
That we can know Him. That we can be reconnected to Him. That we can experience this eternal blessing that comes as a free gift. An unmerited, undeserved gift of grace. And it's there for us. Sing a song of invitation. I want you to think about this as we do. First, if you've never experienced this free grace, this unmerited favor of God, all it takes is a little bit of faith. But second, I want to talk to everyone who's already experienced this grace. Everyone who already knows God's unmerited favor for them, who's able to see what I'm talking about. How are you remembering it? How are you remembering it daily? Let's pray before we sing. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to remember every day the incredible outpouring of love that you have shown us in the sacrifice of your Son. God, thank you for loving us so much that you would provide for us a way to know you and to love you. God, I pray that as we sing, we would pour our hearts out to you, that you would hear our love, that you would know our love. God, I pray that you would find our worship to you daily and in this moment, pleasing. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Will you stand with